Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. I'd like to welcome Lynn to the show. Hi, Lynn. Hello, how are you, Bill? Good to be with you. Lynn's an alcoholic and she's recovering with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. And today we're going to discuss how Alcoholics Anonymous helps alcoholics and problem drinkers. So, Lynn, usually we start off the show talking about growing up and family and relationships and the sort of things that influenced you to take the path you took. So what was your early life like? Well, my early life was, um, was terrific. You know, I often am sitting in a, an AA meeting now and hear people share as much as they're comfortable with about having, you know, really difficult times in their childhood. And my childhood wasn't like that at all. I was very fortunate. I was the youngest of a large family and I grew up in the bush and I was a clever female child. So I was very biddable and very obedient, and um, and I was a voracious reader. I had older siblings who had books in their own, you know, there were always kids' books to read. So I was a really happy and okay kid, and I was, I was clever, and I had no way of foreseeing what the second decade and subsequent decades of my life would be like. When I looked at my childhood, there were kind of no early warning indicators, really. My family members' lives were affected by alcohol. Both of my parents had had alcoholic childhoods themselves. I think it's fair to say that. They had childhoods affected by alcohol. And my father had an on-again, off-again relationship with the grog. But when I was a kid, I never there wasn't grog in the house. There weren't angry fights. And I kind of didn't know that there was such a thing as an alcoholic problem. I didn't know much about alcohol and I didn't know that it, I didn't know that it had good and bad qualities. So my childhood was pretty good. So how did you get on with your older siblings? Oh, I had, um, well, they teased me a lot. <laughs> you know, I was the youngest kid, but I got on well with them. I got on well with my uh, older siblings. I was very supported, cosseted, really, looked after. So there weren't, there weren't issues in, in the childhood that I had that I was aware of, you know. My older siblings began experimenting with um, grown-up behaviours when they were, you know, in their mid-teens, drinking and, and living it up with members of the opposite sex and stuff like that. And I noticed that caused a great deal of tension <laughs> in the family but I don't ever think that I knew as a child that alcohol could be a problematic thing. 
it's funny that you should ask me uh, about it, it's funny to think about my 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 child as my life as a child because when I talk about like the beginning of my drinking it kind of is almost like two two humans stories in one human but I do know there's alcoholism in my family and I do have a, a sibling who remarked to me once that you know we were talking once about how about our alcoholic lives and and my sibling said to me that when she used to walk home from school she had to walk past the pub to, you know between the school and our place was the town it's one of the town's pubs and she used to like it if the door opened or if the cellar was open and she could smell the beer. And that made me think that when I was a child, I used to like um, vaccination day. I used to like injection day. And I think, and then, you know, when they, they swabbed your, your arm down with, with methylated spirit, I used to like it. I used to really like the smell. So I, do, I just, I mean, I don't know, you know, anecdotes are not data. We know that. But I just feel like I was a kid in a body that was going to end up uh, in an alcoholic's body I think I was an alcoholic very early even though I had no exposure to it and didn't hanker for it yeah how do you think that is oh how do I think it is well without the benefit of any scientific study at all except the study of my own life um, I just think it's my DNA as I said to you both of my parents had family links to alcoholism and alcoholic behavior and and alcoholic families if if you if that phrase makes sense and untreated alcoholism was rampant i think and i simply think that i'm i am a person whose dna's makeup is that i don't i can't drink socially or successfully certainly not sophisticated i have never had two drinks in my life it, it isn't something that my body does so that that's how i feel about it it's just in my core makeup yeah so was was it very controlling in your family often they are no 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 it wasn't that was part of the problem later it, it wasn't controlling um i mean there were there were um, rules of behavior and, and manners and and things like that but no i didn't have a controlling family yeah. So, what about at school then? Uh, did you have friends? Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was um, clever and had friendship groups all through my school. I don't remember feeling lonely or other at all as a child. And looking back on that, Bill, you've made me think that perhaps I was a bit gormless. <laughs> but no, my childhood was really um, beautiful. It was beautiful fun. So did things change going to secondary school? Yes, yes. Things, things changed. A whole lot of things changed all at once and not in a good way because what happened in my family situation was that my parents had some they, – they, they, they had a difficulty in, in their small business and – they decided to move from rural Victoria to Western Australia at very short notice. And, it was, and when I look at that now as, as a member of the 12-step um, program, I see that as ge geographical on my father's part and my mother being um, sort of enabling that to happen and not digging in and saying, you know, this is, this is um, 
reactive behaviour and let's not let's not be so crazy. Um, so I sort of see it as an absolute geographical and alcohol alcoholism related event, and that coincided with my moving into puberty, and it also coincided with older siblings staying on the eastern seaboard and me being the only one over there with with them. So things suddenly went from from childhood to deep uncertainty and mingling with, you know, having to start secondary school and stuff like that. So it suddenly went from everything being butte to being quite difficult for me. So did you have problems then, you know, being the only child in a in a family that was having problems? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it, it was it was very lonely. I, I remember feeling very deeply homesick for my the next sibling up from me, who wasn't much older, but had stayed in Victoria because he had a connection to an apprenticeship, and I remember that being deeply painful, actually. Yeah, and and also unspoken. Nothing was nothing was articulated, really. Nothing was articulated. So that, and that was also, you know, somewhat baffling not to have kind of had it explained to me why the hell I was suddenly living in South Fremantle when I'd been in rural Victoria, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was, that was, it suddenly went from being really good to very difficult. And then I was also, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. So it was just, you know, year seven at school. So that was also complicated. So did that affect you academically? Uh, no, no, that didn't affect me academically. But when I ran away from school a couple of years later, that did. <laughs> really put the kibosh on <laughs> my academic capabilities when I wouldn't go anymore. So, but no, moving didn't because I was a clever kid. In fact, I remember, you know, getting Form 1 awards for English and maths and stuff, even though I was in some turmoil and had no idea how secondary school worked, I still was academic. So did you find it easy to make friends going over? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, I made a couple of good uh, friendships, yes. But then um, the family moved back to Victoria and then back to Perth and then back to Victoria. So it was really, I suspect, that if my parents had ever joined a 12-step program, they would have seen that period of their life as, um, you know, uncontrolled alcoholism, really. Even if they weren't, they weren't drinking, you know. My mum never, was never a drinker, but it was just kind of just an inability to, I don't know, to be sensible almost. <laughs> Sane, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, it's, it's very difficult, isn't it? So... If your academic wasn't being impacted, did your friendships change in the in the sort of the nature of the people that you are friends with? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I I suddenly went through a really radical shift when I was a very young teenager, where some circumstances kind of took me away from my parents, but not as a not as a kind of um, rampant runaway or anything like that I, I went to stay with other members of my family for kind of sensible and good reasons and then I never went back I was exposed basically to alcohol and and young adults lives 
and I was very, I mean, I was way, way, way too young for the life that I was exposed to, but I suddenly thought that it was great. And so I went from being an academic and obedient child to being an out-of-control teenager almost in the space of about three months. <laughs> it was just kind of crazy. So was that due to alcohol? Yeah, yeah. That was when I had my first drink. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that, about your first drink? Yeah, well, um, I've shared this at meetings from time to time. And, you know, I've been to a few meetings now over the days of sobriety that I've had, Bill, and I sometimes wonder whether I'm being terribly boring. But I have shared in meetings that I really had very little exposure to alcohol as a child or even as you know like a late early early pubescence I really had very little but when I was in a pub on the Mornington Peninsula years under age and I was asked if I wanted a drink I had the presence of mind to ask for a double gin and bitter lemon (laughs) I don't know how I knew about doubles I really don't but I did and I asked for that and I can remember that I can remember the my life changed. My life absolutely changed when they gave me that drink instead of saying bugger off and go back to school or, you know, I'm ringing the cops. They gave me the drink and I drank it and I suddenly had a new life. So what did it feel like? Uh, well, I've always thought that for me, for this alcoholic, drinking is about anaesthetic. It's pain relief because even though I embraced the new life of being a wild teenager, it was still very anxiety-producing. You know, it wasn't a relaxed lifestyle. It was, I had terrible anxiety about being abroad in the world. I didn't know how to act in the world, and there I was in it. And drink took the edge off that. And drink was always about pain relief for me. Drinking was always about anaesthetic for me. Right through my drinking, it was about anaesthetic. So I remember that's what it felt like then. So what was the um, feeling of craving like? Can you remember that craving? Yes, yeah, sure. But I don't, I I never called it craving. Um, I just used to think that drink was so good that more of it would be better. I, I never really saw it as anything like, I certainly never, as a a young person in my beginning of my drinking career, I never kind of saw it as problematic or that there could be too much, I think. I don't think I could, I I don't think I could imagine that there could be too much or that craving it was actually a bad sign or anything like that. Mm. What about the next day? Um, No problems. Have another drink. That was always my uh, attitude. Did you have problems with blackouts? Yes, yeah. And and when you consider that the problems that I had of being an underage teenager in a world of grown-ups and young adults was already problematic enough, the blackouts didn't help that one bit. You know, blackouts are terribly scary because you're trying to sort of manage in the world and suddenly you also can't remember what happened. And, and so my cure for that was always another drink. I always drank to anaesthetise the feelings I had about how I'd been when I'd drunk. Did your 
siblings have any concerns about your drinking? Yeah, yeah, they did. Yep. And um, they were verbalised to a limited degree because our family was not a great family for articulating how things were or how they were feeling. But they, they were concerned and they did articulate some concerns, yeah. Mm. So how did you react to that? I, I thought they were trying to take me away from something that was really good, I think. You know, I thought anybody who made a comment about how I drank or what it did to me was trying to ruin the best thing in my life. No, seriously. I always thought that, yeah. So I, I guess the way that I drank and the way that the world saw my drinking and the way that I saw the world was set up very early in my drinking for it to be what I wanted to do more of because I was a thirsty drinker and the world was saying, hang on, this is a little bit out of control. And I'd think, well, hey, that's not fair. You know, all I'm doing is drinking. It's a party. So, yeah, there was always, that was always the, the attitude of the world and me. Okay. Awesome. We might take a break there. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. From a private life so public as the tabloids caught your tears being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Lynn, and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Lynn, before the break, we were talking about starting on your alcohol journey and the fact that you felt a little bit rebellious. But do you want to talk about where that took you through your, the end of your teens and the sort of impact it had on your life, you know, your, your schooling, you know, going out to work, uh, relationships and things. So how did that progress? Yeah, well, look, I, I think um, it's interesting because... Progress is an interesting 
word really i think i think my alcoholism progressed certainly it's a progressive illness you will often if you go to an aa meeting you will often hear people say that but i actually think the beginning of my me my drinking didn't so much has have a a progression rather a jumping because as soon as i began drinking i was a committed drinker and i drank a lot always you know i was thirsty as i said earlier i was a thirsty drinker and i thought it was a great lifestyle you know it took the edge off things it enabled me to operate in the world that i found difficult otherwise so it kind of it, it progressed i jumped off the end of the pier as an underage drinker and i stayed in that deep water of of drinking so my friendship groups were always around people who drank you know i wasn't interested in people who didn't and i i remember when i was a young woman a person very you know probably perfectly decently somebody i worked with invited me to a christening for their baby and they you know they would have done that because they they loved their their wonderful baby was the best baby that had ever been born and but also i think that that youngish woman was kind of putting the hand of friendship out to me you know to to offer me some friendship and and someone somewhere to go and wrapped up in the invitation was mention of the fact that it would be a dry christening and i can remember that i was completely not so much offended but just bemused that people would invite me to something where there was no grog and also expect me to go yeah you know, i i just kind of um right from the beginning of my drinking alcohol was always the most important relationship i ever had which was pretty weird but i actually think it's pretty true for this alcohol so the thought of going somewhere where there wasn't a drink was just not on for me and in in my youth you couldn't buy booze on sunday in victoria and so there was always you know the drama of you know had you remembered to get stores in and if you hadn't was there something at the back of the cupboard that would tide you over or would you would you take yourself off there was a pub in port melbourne called i think it's called the brewster at the bottom of bay street you could get a meal on a sunday and it was full of piss pots you know <laughs> it was absolutely full of people like me we were not there for the chicken pajamas you know we were there for the jugs of beer and the and the carafes of of awful plonk that went with the food so i was always i was always that kind of party girl mm. bit of a blessing really that i i never um i never took to other drugs because i i just think i would have been a walk up start for a whole range of things but I stayed with grog. Mm. So how did it affect your relationships? Uh, well, as I said, I had relationships with people who drank. I had siblings who were drinkers and a couple of my siblings over the years became drinking partners and that was both good but it was also it also meant that I never had you know we one of my siblings and i had a pact that we if if we woke up the next morning and couldn't remember what happened the other one would always say no you were all right that was you know <laughs> that was the way that we dealt with each other just like madness yeah so you know all my friends were drinkers my boyfriends were drinkers yeah that that was it if it caused problems if my drinking my behavior my partying if they caused problems well then my solution to that was to find 
another job, another pub, another suburb to live in, another friendship group. I was very deeply into avoiding any difficult thoughts or discuss, you know, thoughts, that thoughts were bad enough, let alone discussions with anybody else about what Tricky did to me. So did you go to uni? Yeah, I did. I eventually, the, one of the very fortunate things in my life was my older siblings showed me the way in that sense by returning to study, having had slightly what they call in education, non-linear progression into formal study themselves. They showed me that that was possible and, and I'd loved school as a child. And so I was really um, always one of the you know absolute blessings of my life was to go back to uni and study. So I did that. Crikey, I drank a lot. Yeah, it is a place where people do drink a lot. Uh, a number of people I've interviewed have talked about, you know, going to uni just to drink, which um, didn't work out well. So how did it work out for you? Oh, it worked out okay for me, um, but I, I, I just drank and studied, you know. I drank and wrote essays. I drank and, um, and got through the subjects and the years. Again, at uni, I sought out the drinkers. I certainly wasn't joining any. I wasn't joining the badminton club or anything like that. It was study and drink. So that was the that was the club I joined when I think about it. So leaving uni then and going to work, how did your drinking impact on your work? Well, I started work at around the same time as I had children. And that was a period in my life when my kids were babies, when I didn't drink nearly as much as I had. Um, I married a man who whose childhood had been affected by drinking. And he hated my drinking. He hated it with a passion. And it took me a long time in sobriety to have a bit of compassion for his view. <laughs> Way too long, actually, for me to not see that that was pretty tricky for him to, to have repeated his childhood by marrying somebody who was so deeply dependent on, on alcohol. And he hated it. And I had young kids and they were the non-sleeping variety and I was, I'd started working. And so... There's quite a few years there where I was sort of pretty good by my standards, you know. I, I used to have a rule that I would not drink on more days of the week than I drank, so I, that meant I could only drink three days and four would be off. And it really, that was quite a, a stable period of my drinking life. But there were always you know, breakouts when I'd be out for dinner or something with work colleagues or the Christmas party or something when I was the one who you know, drank too much too early, said too much too loud and all those kinds of things. So there, it was never, I can't say that I, I let me try to be clear. Um, I still think that I was an alcoholic who drank alcoholically. I just didn't drink as much in those years. So when did your drinking sort of kick off again? Well, my marriage ended. And from my point of view, that was quite good because it meant that I could drink the way I wanted to drink without having another grown-up in the house to point out that I was being a dickhead again, you know, or that I was drinking more than I'd promised or I'd said I'd be sober and I wasn't. So when I became a sole parent, my drinking really took off again. I could drink the way I wanted to, put the kids to bed and drink. Yeah, and that is something that I... It's the unavoidable truth that I 
showed my kids a pretty ordinary family life in those days. You know, it was it was problematic. It wasn't always terrible, but there's no doubt that my drinking affected my children's lives. Mm. Quite a few years later, quite a few years after that, I went to an AA meeting and I heard a woman about my age stand up and say, I dragged my kids through my drinking. And that was probably one of the first times in my life that I could not avoid the truth in my own head, in my own being, about what drinking was like. So, yeah, my kids' lives were, no, in, in no doubt, there can be no doubt my kids were affected by having me as, their, as the, the single head of household. So what caused you to go to an AA meeting? I didn't go then. I didn't go six months after being a sole parent and realising I was partying too much. It, was, it took a bloody long time, Bill. And that's when I said earlier, you know, I noticed the progression, that there was just this progression back to where I'd been as a young woman. You know, it was um, daily drinking and it was affecting every aspect of my life. And I had all of the, I'm sure, that people who are listening to this, either themselves or people who've got uh, alcoholics in their family, will have heard the, the phrase guilt, shame and remorse. And I had all of those things very often. And I hated it, like anybody, you know, who doesn't hate not remembering what happened or worse, remembering what happened and how you'd been a complete dill the night before in front of other people that you wanted to front up with up at work with the next day and, and all those kinds of things. I had all of those things happen to me way too often. So I had all the guilt, all the shame, all the remorse, all the embarrassment, all the wishing that it hadn't been so. But I never once thought I shouldn't drink. Never once. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, and, and nowadays as a sober member of AA, if I tell anybody who knew me back in those days, that I no longer drink and I go to AA. Not one person who's seen me drink has ever said to me, oh, really? Do you need to go to AA? You know? Not one person. But I never, it never once crossed my mind that I should not drink. And around about that time, one of my siblings did go to AA and she did get sober. And that was a sibling that I was really fond of. You know, I mean, I had a lot of them and I was really I had such a strong connection with that particular sibling and and when she told me that that she hadn't had a drink for six months and she was going to meetings I remember thinking oh bugger because now I'm going to have to avoid her you know because otherwise I might have to have one of those icky conversations about how not drinking is better than drinking and I was really sad about that I, was, I, I remember feeling very sad about that like it was like it, I had a bit of sense of loss but I wasn't going to be catching up with her so she could tell me that not drinking was better than drinking. So my head was a pretty weird place. Did she try to talk about AA or not? I think she tried to articulate why she was happier and healthier. Mm. And she talked about the guilt, shame and remorse and how that and having, and being free from that on a daily basis was joyous. And Yes, but she didn't try to say, you should give this a burl, because I was certainly on the, I was on the lookout for that phrase. <laughs> the antenna were up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So where did your drinking take you such that you 
did look for help? Well, it progressed. I was unwell in every aspect of my life. By this stage, my children were teenagers and they were very unhappy. And I was broke because drinking all the time costs a lot. I was unable to go to work because I was completely and utterly unreliable in a job that I actually loved. I had a job that I really, really loved and it meant a lot to me, but I was completely unreliable. And in the end, my boss said to me, listen, F off and don't come back. And even as the queen of denial as I was, I couldn't misunderstand that, you know. I wasn't allowed to go there and I loved it. I was really deeply embarrassed about that. I crashed my car into a parked car and the cops were bloody furious with me. The cop was so angry with me. Uh, I can still remember how he was just furious with me. He just thought, you know, what a complete dickhead. And he was right. So I, I was just in all kinds of trouble. And I was physically unwell. You know, it was kind of catching up on me. But I still didn't think that I could or should give up drinking. I still did not. I couldn't. I honestly, Bill, I'm not making this up when I say that I was unable to imagine life without drink. I simply couldn't imagine that it could be done. So I wasn't a great prospect <laughs> on many levels. Why <laughs> 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 I'm laughing. <laughs> okay, well, so we might take another short break there. More than 70 innocent refugees are still being indefinitely detained in detention centres and secure hotels around Australia. Over recent months, many fellow detainees have been released onto bridging visas. Those remaining are desperate to know why they are still held. It is indefinite, it is cruel, and it is unlawful. Every day, a group of supporters protest this brutality outside the Park Hotel at 701 Swanson Street, Melbourne, where 11 men remain trapped and whose hopes are fading and whose mental health is declining. The aim of the protests is to raise awareness of the situation for the general public, but also to show support and solidarity to the men inside. It is also for the approximately 200 refugees still held offshore. Please come along any weeknight at 6pm or weekend at 3pm. Tune in to Uprise Radio every first and third Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR. With Jackson and James, we're bringing you the in-depth analysis of what's happening in the world all in just 30 minutes. You can listen live to air or you can find us on demand. 3cr.org.au. Stay tuned. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And I'm talking with Lynn, and we're talking about recovery from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Lynn, before the break, we were talking about where your drinking had taken you and the fact that things were starting to, your problems were starting to pile up, but alcohol wasn't a problem to you. So what caused you to reach out to get some help? I, I don't think I can say, Bill, that alcohol wasn't a problem for me. I mean, al- al- alcohol was a huge problem for me because I couldn't function in the world because of the way I drank. You know, I, I was allegedly an adult, a grown-up, 
but I was behaving like, you know, like a six-year-old who had a glass of punch at a, at a wedding kind of thing, you know, I, but worse than that. I mean, I was out of control. I was, my life was completely unmanageable. Alcohol caused me heaps of problems, but it was simultaneously my anaesthetic to the problems that were caused yesterday, and I just could not imagine not drinking. I couldn't imagine it. I actually, at the end of my drinking, I did not want to drink the way I drank. I couldn't say that I was, um, that I hated it or that I was over it, but I hated where I was. I hated the life that I created for myself. I could see no way out, but I couldn't imagine uh, that there was a way out, you know. I couldn't make a picture of me not drinking. So what actually happened was, as I said, I crashed my car. I drank on that. I had a lot of shame. I used to try willpower. Willpower is the most hopeless way for an alcoholic to give up alcohol because, you know, what you say to yourself and to others wholeheartedly on Sunday morning simply isn't there by, you know, Tuesday lunchtime, if you lasted that long. I, I had no ability not to drink. I tried chemical intervention for, on the part of a very good GP. I had a good GP who never gave up on me, but he used to talk straight to me, which I hated. So I tried a lot of things, but I'd never actually tried not drinking. And then I was in so much trouble and I was so miserable. And my sober sister actually rang me out of the blue. Well, not out of the blue from her point of view, but I wasn't expecting it. And she asked me if I would do something for her. And I said, yes, of course. You know, thinking thinking that she you know, might want me to, I don't know, give us some money, not that she needed it, but I sort of thought money or I thought maybe she wants me to pick her up from the airport. Not that anybody would ever want me to pick them up from any airport, you know, but I was sort of thinking like that, you know, a family member rings and says, would you do something for me? And she said, would you please go to two AA meetings? And she said two because she thought one might not be enough for me. <laughs> and I think she was right then. And, and the miracle, Bill, is that I did. I went to an AA meeting. And that is the absolute, absolute bloody miracle of intervention from a loved one that I went. So I got out of bed one morning and I didn't have a drink. And I worked out how to get from where I lived to a meeting in Ivanhoe, which was about I don't know, a 45-minute drive, which was really hard for me because I'm not very good where I don't know, you know, in new suburbs, directions-wise. And it was a huge undertaking, like emotionally, but also logistically to think, you know, to get out to there and find the meeting and, you know. And I went there and I thought, well, you know, you, you, you said you would, you told your sister you would. So you have to. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm so lucky that, that I had a sister who could do that for me, who could, who could ask me that of me. Anyway, I got to the meeting and, oh, I'd rung, I'd rung central office the day before and I'd spoken to a woman whose name I've completely forgotten. It might have been Jan or Jeanette or something like that. And she told me where this meeting was you know, the next day. She said, I'll be at that meeting. So, you know, if you're there, I'll look out for you. And I found her and she gave me a hug. And I remember, I remember very, very vividly that hug from that woman because I had a lot of shame at the end of my drinking about how I was presenting to the world and how I, I smelled of um, 
filtered alcohol all the time. You know, I had more alcohol than I could ever manage to cycle through my kidneys. And I had a lot of shame about getting close to people. But she just hugged me and said she was glad I came. And the thing I noticed about the people in that, I mean, I couldn't understand anything that they were saying. I talking, you know, stuff I didn't understand at all about steps and sponsors and recovery and none of that meant anything to me. But I noticed the difference between the people in that meeting and me. And the difference that I noticed was that they were happy to be with each other. They were happy to be out at a meeting. And I'd been isolating at the end of my drinking. You know, I certainly wasn't catching up in social situations. And I noticed that they didn't need to isolate. They, they had that difference. And I also noticed they were happy in their skin. And I was so full of uh, unhappiness with myself. I was so burdened by myself, by the self that I was, that I could just see the difference. So I left that meeting and, and went to another one the next day. I went to the gallery the next day. So I, I did do what my sister asked me, which was go to two meetings. And when I went to the meeting, I think what really, what really might be helpful for people to hear, if they're contemplating, you know, thinking that maybe they can give AA a burl or give not drinking a burl. When I went, I did not go thinking that it would make any difference at all to my drinking. I did not think that AA would make any difference to how I drank and how my life was uh, because nothing else had worked. You know, the self-will the, the self hadn't worked. The, the GP's intervention hadn't worked. The promising my family hadn't worked. Nothing had worked. So why would AA work? And so I kind of just went thinking, well, this won't work. But I just kept hearing from other people whose stories were so similar to mine that when they didn't drink, their lives got better. I just kept hearing it. The example was too great to ignore. That if you're an alcoholic and you don't like how you drink, and when you don't drink, life is better. And so I was simultaneously surprised to discover that I could not drink for 24 hours. I was really surprised. It never occurred to me that I could, that I could do it. But also, I loved the fact that it was better. And, and the biggest fear that I had, like a really big fear from when I was quite a, like a young kid at the start of my drinking, that double gin and tonic in the Mornington Peninsula Hotel, the biggest fear was always that without alcohol, life would simply be overwhelming. And I discovered in early, in early sobriety, in early AA meetings, that life wasn't overwhelming as a sober person. It was actually better. Nobody was more surprised than me <laughs> to discover that, that it was actually better. Mm. So how did your children react to you getting into AA? Oh, they loved it. My kids much prefer me as a non-drinker as compared to drinking. Yes, for sure. They were very um, relieved. It didn't stop them from taking up their own pursuits as young teenagers, experimenting, you know, with drinking at parties and stuff themselves they, or anything like that, you know, but neither of them drink any, anything like the way I did. So they wanted the madness to stop. That's what they wanted. Yeah. They wanted to live in a household that wasn't mad. And if I don't drink a day at a time, I'm not mad. I'm not a, I'm not a mad, um, crazy person out in the world causing havoc. So 
it was preferable. Yeah. So were your parents still alive when you stopped drinking? Yes, yeah. Did that impact your relationship with them? Oh, look, as I said a little bit earlier, there's nobody who knew me as a drinker who doesn't think that, it, that I'm better to get along with as a sober member of humanity. You know, my mother had to take up some of my mothering duties when she was in her 70s. You know, I would be out of action for short periods of time and she'd turn up and do a load of washing, you know. That was another thing that actually got me to, to face up to my drinking, the fact that my mother was cooking my kids' dinner. Come on, you know. So I guess that, you know, all of all of my parents' kids who don't drink, I think my parents think that that's better for them. I think that the way that alcohol interacts with all of our family, um, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but I, I think that nobody, including my parents, ever said, why don't you have a glass of wine with dinner? <laughs> uh, which sort of brings me back to, to families and things. So did, did any of your family seek help in Al-Anon? I think I, I think I have had some siblings who have been to Al-Anon. I went to a few meetings myself for around that family stuff, you know, the, the whole knowing that and hearing members of the fellowship talk about Al-Anon made me think that it was something that I should look into. And the thing about Al-Anon that I remember very vividly is that when I went, I kind of expected to be seen as the enemy because, you know, I was standing up and saying, hi, I'm Lynn and I'm an alcoholic and I'm here to learn or whatever. I don't even remember what I said, but I sort of assumed that people would say, well, you're, people like you are the ones who call trouble, cause trouble for people like us. But I... I remember two things very vividly. One is I was given just as warm a welcome into Eleanor as I was into AA. The, the, the welcome was just as inclusive and just as warm. And the other thing is that I remember after sitting down and listening to people, I remember thinking, Christ, I should have been here bloody years ago. Because even though I didn't see drinking as a, as a kid, it affected my life. So, yeah, in, very interesting. Mm. So did that help you? Yeah, understand your relationship with your parents? Yes, I, I think being a sober person and listening to members of AA, and I've also spent a little bit of time with CODA, Codependence Anonymous, just as more of a, as a support person uh, with a close friend. And I think anything that gives us the ability to reflect honestly about our path in the lives of others leads us to be honest and open and and see it from another point of view, which I could never do. I could never do that as a drunk. I could never see anybody else's point of view as a drunk because I had to cling on to my special relationship with the girl. So I, I think just the opportunity to reflect and think, what is this like for you, is an enormous uh, opportunity for a bit of wisdom to come in. So what about work now that you're sober? How's that impacted your work life? Well, it's better. <laughs> I got back into the career that I, that I have and I love it, you know. And I don't keep it a, a secret, you know, like I have occasionally said to people at work, this is um, if you ever want to talk about or 
this is what I'm doing. To, I can't, not, no, I can't come out for dinner because it's my home group. And I might explain what that means or something. Yeah, I, um, look, Bill, I don't think I'd be alive if I hadn't given up drinking, let alone have, still have work. So it's as simple as that for me. Yeah, it's a harsh reality, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Okay. If anyone would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can phone them in Australia on 1300 222 or go online at aa.org.au for more information and details of local AA meetings. That's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Lynn for sharing her recovery experience with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped her. Thank you. Very much. I've enjoyed it. It's an amazing, I think this is the longest share I've ever done. Good. I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll feature another guest sharing their recovery experience. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have Formidable Vegetable singing Climate Movement, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. I believe we all came to be here for a reason. To acknowledge the seniors, everything has a season. This season is warm, but it's bringing a storm and a burning urge for our journey to transform. But held in our hand at this grave intersection is a map of the passage for a clearer direction to a permanent culture. It's time we began it with some wise design to realign with the planet, share skills to rebuild our combined reliance, and with wild guidance redesign our diet, befriend energy descent and the change in climate, to grow forests of food and a finer environment. Permaculture at this tumultuous juncture is a superstructure that can plug the puncture. In a society of anxiety, confusion and greed, this really may be one solution we need to bring back our elementary essence of ethics and walk in earth care, people care, fair share epic. Now's the time to embed it while the temperature's tepid. Let us rise as a choir beside the people who get it to guarantee that our future generation's lives are provided the conditions they require to thrive. Instead of being deprived of the tools to survive in a biosphere too defiled to revive. So we invite you now to amplify the synergy, devise an inspired distinctive soliloquy, combining with like minds an adaptable symphony of radical simplicity balance and symmetry whatever your ability we need your assistance in aid of reclaiming a stable existence go summon your gift at this critical hour and deliver wherever they move and empower You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.